Hello, this is Robert Rickover at Body Learning, and today my guest is Evangeline Benedetti, who was a cellist uh, in the New York Philharmonic for um, a long time, over 40 years. She's been an Alexander Technique teacher for, um, well... 25 years or so, it looks like. Long time. She's been involved with the technique for 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 many more years. And we're going to talk today about some things that Alexander Technique teachers who have professional musicians as students um, might do well to be aware of. Um, being in an orchestra poses some very, very... Uh, demanding challenges, and we're going to talk about that. Um, Evangeline, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. Nice to be here. Well, it's good to talk to you again. This is actually our, our third conversation, and, and this, this one is really more for, for Alexander uh, teachers. So, um, in a nutshell, what, what do you, what's the most important thing, do you think, it, for an Alexander Technique teacher to be aware of if they have a musician who's performing in an orchestra or on stage, that kind of thing. What 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 are some of the issues there? Oh, there are numerous. Um, naming one as the most would be extraordinarily difficult. So Name a bunch. <laughs> I'll name a bunch. I think um, one of the, of course, hallmarks of the Alexander Technique is inhibiting of stopping before you do something. And so I would pose the question of what do we need to inhibit? So what are the um, stimuli or forces coming to the musician in this environment that need to be dealt with? Mm -hmm. I would, well, the first one I would say... um, uh, we'll just sort of start at the beginning and walk through this, if that's okay. Sure. So the musician has to, of course, walk on stage carrying their instrument, which can even be has- hazardous because as a woman, you're most likely wearing a long skirt. And uh, there are many chairs and sometimes podiums uh, that musicians sit on to be able to see the conductor, etc., until you can arrive at your seat. So that would be the first hazard, watching and walking consciously on stage, right? putting your mind and body to use there. Then, of course, one must sit. So sitting, uh, I did discuss with you uh, in one of the previous interviews, so Mm -hmm. um, I have a shortcut there called the squat sit which probably stimulates you as an Alexander teacher anyway. Mm -hmm. So if you want details, refer to the previous interview I did. Okay. Okay, so now we're seated. And there is then the arrangement of the chairs on stage. Now, it doesn't might not seem so obvious, but every person on that stage has to see the music and see the conductor. And uh, how you arrange yourself is can be quite difficult. The space is tight. Mm -hmm. The musicians uh, both want to sit in a certain approximation to your uh, colleagues so that you can have the feeling of an ensemble as you play. Yet, if you're a cellist, you have to have approximately 
uh, four, maybe four feet, three to four feet around you so that your bows don't uh, collide right, <laughs> and right. you don't have a um, fencing match rather than <laughs> a lovely <laughs> experience of uh, bowing the music right? Um, because cause the bows go side by side. If you notice the violin and violas, their bows go more up and down in the air. Therefore, that doesn't require the same kind of space that cellists and bassists need. So um, then there's uh, we all string players share a stand of uh, where the music is placed. Mm-hmm. The winds and uh, brass have their own stands and percussion because they're playing individual parts. But because we're playing uh, the same part and there are page turns that are difficult to make and that sort of thing, we share the music. Well, now, again, this becomes quite difficult to, can be quite difficult to arrange yourself on stage so that you can easily see the music accurately, have space to play, and see the conductor. And so, one, so, one so you music- can see that all of these uh, various angles uh, have to be taken into consideration when you're sitting to play. Right. I mean, one musician has to turn to her right and one to her left, right? Well, it could be that way because it's a, a little difficult for both to sit um, sort of parallel to the stand. Well, but in terms of, it's yeah, the, exactly. Right. And then, of course, you also need to see the music. So... Uh, it, uh, that's, that's one, one, uh, people solve that various ways, either both slanting towards the stand at, at their angle. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's much more strategic for one person to be more or less straight on and the other one to an angle. Right. And, um, there are so many different variations of this arrangement that it's impossible to, even list them, much less go through them here on this interview. But but but, but it sounds but, like the the overall picture is pretty cramped quarters. A lot of attention has to be paid in different directions, and maybe also not always the most comfortable chairs. Absolutely. And just oh. and of course being. Um, uh, for a concert, not dressed casually, but in formal attire. Yes. And having lots of people staring at you. Well, uh, I must say that that is, uh, in a, certainly in a symphony orchestra situation, you wear your concert clothes so often. In the Philharmonic, we had four concerts a week. Mm-hmm. It's um, putting on familiarity instead of dressing up, so to speak. Uh, okay. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, and as far as the audience watching you, of course you have that presence there. But it is not usually one that uh, you take into consideration, uh, in except that you know you are communicating with the audience. Right. But the right. looking at you is not usually a problem after uh, the amount of time, certainly, that a, p- a person does this uh, job. The con- number of concerts you play becomes, you know, like everyday living. Mm-hmm. So, um, but back to these different angles in the crowded space and everything, you you have to, uh, in addition to seeing the music, you must see the conductor. And, of course, ideally, it would be that the music is directly in front of you and the conductor is directly in front of you. But, again, we seldom have that uh, lovely um, view that would line up the best for us. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have to use your eyes a great deal as a player. 
you have to be able to switch your eyes quickly from the music to the conductor. That might be at various angles depending on where you're sitting mm -hmm. and usually not the same for every rehearsal. So I would um, suggest that Alexander teachers watch the eye movement of their um, uh, students or their clients to see if they can quickly switch from one to the other and back to the same place. Because you see you have a very specific kind of seeing on the page and you have a rather general seeing of the conductor. So learning to take your eyes from one, one point of view to the other point of view is a skill that must be acquired. Mm -hmm. So we use peripheral vision a great deal in playing. It's often said uh, by audience members, you never look at the conductor. Well, you're always looking at the conductor. The conductor is always in your per at least peripheral vision. And sometimes at crucial spots, your most uh, direct um, uh, vision. So that's another aspect to be explored. Vision, seeing the music, seeing the conductor, going back and forth between the two. A big skill that a musician needs to learn. And do you think, it, in, in terms of an actual lesson situation, knowing about the importance of the of the eye movements and so on, that it could actually be helpful to work with a musician on that in a non-musical setting? Of course. Uh, just to... to I have learned most of my uh, Alexander technique applications through non-musical sources because right. most in fact i would say that all of my alexander teachers have not been musicians mm -hmm. all the primary teachers i've worked with have not been musicians mm -hmm. and certainly not of the professional um standing that i have enjoyed throughout these years and there is really no way that a non-musician can have this experience um other than being uh an accomplished musician who is in a major orchestra. It's a rarefied uh, living and one that I have enjoyed and happy to share best I can. And I would also think that the importance of having a free neck is uh, is something to think about, too. Well, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming in talking about these various um, things that I am presenting as uh, problems that a musician must solve is that the teacher is, of course, going to ha be working with the principles of the Alexander Technique, mm -hmm. which, of course, is the free neck, the lengthening spine, the head balance, mm -hmm. sitting on your sit bones, uh, free legs, mm -hmm. etc., in order so that your arms can be free to move so that you can make the musical movements that you need and mindful movements that you need to play well. Right, right. Uh, another thing I want to uh, talk about, which is maybe not something that the teacher uh, might think of, which is the sound level on stage. It is um, about as loud as one can get at times. Um as mo many, many musicians, I have a, a little bit of, of a, a deficit in uh, hearing, just the high note, the very highs. And um, I was speaking with my, um, the audiologist who was doing the testing, and the person asked me, have you been on a uh, shooting range? Do you, do you shoot? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, 
but I sit in front of the trombones in the Philharmonic. He said, oh, that's why. Yeah, yeah. He took it as a matter of course that the volume of sitting nearby or sometimes in the direct uh, aim of brass players or the percussion is a hazard to one's hearing. Um, and, okay, there are ma many ways it's solved. We have special earplugs. Sometimes there are... Um, barriers, uh, plexiglass barriers put between the non-playing brass player and the brass player, um, etc. But I think uh, for our purposes, it's the reaction to those loud sounds that mm -hmm. really important to help the musician learn to inhibit. And it really, uh, the suddenness and loudness of the sound is hardly any, our response to it anyway, is hardly any different than the one of of the startle response that's so often talked about in the Alexander Technique, where you throw your head back and down and you raise your shoulders. It's all for protection of your hearing and sure. the yeah. vital uh, organs. So um, I think it's hardly um, possible to not have a reaction to those sounds, but again, noticing that you have reacted and coming back into a viable and uh, a health-giving primary control uh, is a very important technique that the musician can learn and can be learned from the Alexander teacher. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. So um, also another, another place where you get these very loud sounds, which is not uh, necessarily obvious to the um, uh, non-playing musician, is uh, that uh, where you sit in relationship to the high winds. I was, um, that's the piccolo, the flute, uh, not so bad flute, oboe, um, etc. Now, I was seated in the orchestra on the second stand. Um, one stand, obviously, behind the principal player. And in the New York Philharmonic, the, we sit in the, towards the center of the orchestra, and uh, so my seat was directly in front of the, or in between the principal flute and the principal oboe. Mm -hmm. And it was really quite startling to um, hear those loud sounds. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> loud sounds. So, um, you know, of course, again, I would adjust my seating so that I would not be directly in the line of fire, so to speak. And, and, um, would ear, wear earplugs, um, they, they don't block out all sounds, of course, for those of you who might be horrified by the idea of a professional musician wearing earplugs. Uh, they cut down a certain percentage of the sound is all. Right. Still have your um, uh, the ability to discern your sound and what you're playing and what have you. So um, anyway, that would be a solution. Uh, but again, it's that response to raising your shoulders to protect your ears is a real major uh, problem for the musician and one in which inhibition, of course, that we learn through the technique is key. Do you, do you think it, for, for an Alexander teacher who has an uh, orchestral musician as a student that there's anything – that they could do differently in terms of working on those issues than they might with um, a non-musician? 
You know, I don't really uh, think so. I think just carrying on with these ideas in mind of, you know, uh, trying to help the musician identify what happens when there's a very loud sound. Mm-hmm. I would hate for the, the Alexander Dieter to set up a situation in which the decibels would be as loud as in symphony orchestra mm-hmm. because we don't want to be in the position of deafening our clients. No. <laughs> uh, but if the uh, client can somehow uh, get into their body imaginally and reproduce what happens to them when they are in that situation, then I think the uh, teacher would see the habitual response to this sound and then through our training and our solutions help the musician inhibit the habit as we do and replace it with a better habit. Um, And as I said, it's the coming and going. In other words, if you do it, if you raise your shoulders and throw your head back, recognize it and come out of it. Mm -hmm. I think that's what that ebb and flow of bad use to good use is what one would, uh, what I have always worked with, at least in my career in playing. And I I think it's the, the thing that we face all the time in life is, you know, numerous opportunities for bad use, of which we do because we're human and habitual uh, creatures. But Mm -hmm. the recognition of it and the replacement of mindful movements or return to mindful movements is the way to restore health. Right. You know, as uh, as a teacher uh, myself who likes to work with their students in the activities their students do and listening to your description i would think an ideal thing which probably is not at all practical but just as an ideal if you could work with your student during a rehearsal right there on stage i can't imagine that any that could happen but wouldn't that be kind of an ideal situation uh, yes and no. Um, from the point of view, you know, of uh, ideology, yes. But from the practical situation, the the musician would not ever be in a situation where they could concentrate on what the Alexander teacher is doing as well as paying attention to the rehearsal and the demands that are being put upon you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, it would be... Unless you have an extraordinarily enlightened uh, conductor management colleagues. <laughs> well, that's that's what I, <laughs> would, I, I'm thinking. It would be hard-pressed to find a situation where you can do that. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but as a theoretical I, I think, ideal, let's put it that well, way. Well, it might be, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in uh, when when one plays one's instrument, if the musician would bring an orchestral passage to the teacher mm-hmm. rather than a solo one uh because uh, then then their the the habits could maybe be more easily identified mm-hmm. because you know everything is response to stimuli mm-hmm. and i know that my response to playing a box suite within my body is quite a bit different than playing a tchaikovsky symphony mm-hmm. because built into my uh response to the tchaikovsky symphony is the whole orchestral setting. Actually, it's 
illuminating to me as I sit here telling you about these different things. I can feel my body go into orchestral response, <laughs> which, of course, I have to sit here and inhibit mm-hmm. as I speak with you. So I think that some kind of a stimulus that would uh, bring about the orchestral situation could work in a lesson. How about, I'm just thinking off top of my head here, how about if there was a recording uh, that uh, you that's could play? totally different, too. I don't think that would work so well. You don't think so? No. But something that they're playing in, in the context of all of these um, stresses. Yeah, just have them bring their part in. Yes, okay. Sing yeah. at home or, right. or whatever. That, I think, would be enough of a, of a setup to mm-hmm. bring about the responses that the player has under those circumstances. And, in fact, it would be quite interesting, I think, for the uh, Alexander teacher to have uh, their client play something that is, you know, um, has been within, with them for many, many years, such as a box suite, or their favorite uh, concerto or their favorite piece, have them play that, because that would be one that the musician has thoroughly worked out, worked in their minds, practiced many years maybe, mm-hmm. and then have them play a difficult excerpt from the orchestral repertoire. And I think you would probably see the differences or some of the differences that are um, inherent in playing in an orchestra. I, I could imagine uh, some value uh, in switching back and forth a few times. Well, however the teacher wants yeah, to uh, yeah. see that those patterns. Mm-hmm. Because again, we're working with habitual patterns of behavior and the stimuli that comes to us and our response to it. So, yes, whatever um, technique the teacher needs right, right. <laughs> in their teaching um, ways to bring about the uh, differences in the stimulus mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. be, um, or stimuli would be, mm-hmm advantageous to both mm-hmm. um there's one more area that i want to talk about before uh, we end this sure uh-huh. which would be watching the beat mm-hmm. now there's a moment or maybe a couple of seconds or something that is just um well i'm thinking pregnant with tension <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> of a better word of a better description of Seeing and responding to the downbeat of the conductor, it uh, especially the first note that you play, or having paused at various places when the whole orchestra must come in with something like boom, then da dee dee da 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 dee da, Beethoven's uh, wonderful Eroica Symphony. Mm-hmm. Well, those first two notes of the huge chords that everyone must play at exactly the same time can produce enormous anxiety for the player because depending on the clarity of the conductor um, coming in, you have to come with the the indication of the so-called stick of the conductor mm-hmm. and you must then play with the slight delayed response which is different for each or- orchestra and different in relationship to each conductor so this is a moment when you're waiting for that downbeat in full attention uh, heightened expectation where lots of tension can build up in a player 
So um, I guess in learning to take that tension and out of the body and putting it into simply uh, watchfulness of the mind would be the way to solve that. Uh, very right. difficult to do because our minds and bodies are so interrelated. But changing whatever the response is to that instant would be of great help to the musician in the symphony orchestra setting. Mm. Boy, I had never thought of that, oh, those, those things you just mentioned. Most um, tense-filled moment. Yeah. Um, perhaps a musician, another musician might not even describe it as such because we have so often um, worked with, um, with it that we just simply are there for that. Now, um, we've, the musical world has lost one of its great um, proponents of the Alexander Technique in the recent passing of Sir Colin Davis. That's true, yes. Now, Sir Colin Davis was one of the great conductors of the world and one with whom I played many times. Uh, his uh, wife uh, was a teacher of the Alexander Technique, mm -hmm. and he studied the Alexander Technique long before he met his wife mm -hmm. and has been a proponent of it for many, many years. I think he was told, now this might not be factual, it might be hearsay, so I'm not putting it out as a fact, but I believe he told me that Sir Thomas Beecham told him as a young uh, budding conductor that if he didn't change the way he moved, he would not be conducting many years. So uh, I think that that's what set him on his path to the Alexander Technique. Yes, I, I, there is actually an audio recording of him speaking about his introduction to the Alexander Technique, among many other things. So did I have the right conductor? You know, that sounds familiar. Uh, he, that someone, someone advised him early on that he really ought to explore the Alexander Technique. Um, I haven't listened to it in a long time. It's actually on my, my website, that interview. That's wonderful. Um, well, he was yeah. a great proponent of it. He wrote yes. a beautiful forward to um, uh, Pedro del uh, Alcanto. Is that how you yes, say it? Yes, del, del Pedro de Alcantara. Alcantara, that? sorry. How do you like that? That's pretty good, huh? Well, that's a, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a very fine, wonderful author and musician. Yeah. Yes, Pedro de Alcantara. And he's written he a, a he's written a book called Indirect Procedures, yes, which is, also, has yes. a new edition out now, and he probably is the best is best known for working with musicians, and he he himself is a musician. So. That's right. That's what I yes right. just just yeah. did allude to. So, uh, but Sir Colin Davis wrote a foreword to the book uh -huh. that's absolutely touching. Mm -hmm. And uh, would recommend uh, that reading. Well, now, but, but back to our subject. Uh, I mentioned Sir Colin Davison wanted to show how the influence of the technique on him and his influence towards the technique to getting musicians to study it, what have you, mm -hmm. has been uh, quite vast. Now, uh, he would emphasize breathing before you play. Taking mm -hmm. a breath in, an in a quick in-breath, and then on the exhalation, play. So he would want everybody to, you know, I'll make noise for breathing, which one doesn't want to do, but you go, oh, play. Mm -hmm. So if, it's, if the tempo is one, two, three, four, you would breathe on the fourth beat 
in, inhalation on the fourth beat, and exhalation on the first. So it would be something like one, two, three, play. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> Did you hear my breath? <laughs> I heard it, yep. Okay. So, uh, and in chamber music, that's exactly what happens. There is both an in-breath and an out-breath as the uh, leader of the chamber group is going to uh, raise, make some kind of a, a bigger uh, visual movement, such as if you're in a string quartet, the first violinist would raise their violin and come down with it slightly as an indication of when to play. Mm -hmm. So if the whole orchestra, which uh, Sir Colin Davis did get occasionally, this wonderful togetherness of the in-breath, and then the playing on the exhalation, it would be a marvelous result. Because not only would it be together, the music would be alive together mm -hmm. because everyone's paid attention a little bit to the breathing that they were doing at that moment. Mm -hmm. And he, he stressed um, breathing with the whole, within the context of the whole orchestra a great deal when um, something was not working, if the passage was not together – he would say, well, let's just breathe together and let's just forget about following me. Everybody take their own breath and breathe and play. And, <laughs> of course, mm -hmm. when that would happen, it would be just absolutely beautiful results most of the time. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, oh, that's, that's fascinating, yeah. It, I guess it's too bad for orchestral musicians that there aren't more conductors who are familiar with the technique. Well, I think that there might be uh, a number that have, have studied it or um, to, to a certain degree, but the application that Sir Colin brought to it and brought to the orchestra, I mean, he never spoke Alexander technique to the orchestra. I mean, that would be something that would be not um, appropriate, but he would just have you breathe. And, of course, we all know what the breath does for the body and the coordination Sure. So yeah. um, through that, again, <laughs> to quote the book that uh, Pedro wrote, through that indirect procedure, he got a really wonderful results from the orchestra. At, at that moment of extreme tension, right. breathe and mm -hmm. play, you're going to um, dissipate a lot of the tension that you're holding. Because, you know, I mean, think about it when you're anticipating something that has to be so precise, you usually hold your breath. Yep. You get mm -hmm. so still that you, you freeze and the breath is stopped. Mm -hmm. So by releasing that, freed, that freezing into breath before you play will take a great deal of that tension out of your playing. Well, I think this might be a good place to bring our conversation to an end. What, what do you think? think? So. Yeah. I do. Well, um, I my, my... my subject forever, but I do think... We've covered this space and mm -hmm. sitting, seeing the conductor, the loudness of the orchestra, which is enormous, yeah. and now the tension of watching and waiting for the beat. I think I, I really think that's the three, or certainly three key areas that an Alexander teacher can help uh, orchestral player with. Well. Um my my guest has been uh, Evangeline Benedetti, Benedetti, who has was for many years uh, a cellist in the New York Philharmonic. She's been an Alexander Technique teacher for a great many years. Also, she lives in New York City, 
And uh, Evangeline, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to share my life experience with my colleagues.